Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. So quick trigger warning for this one. Um, We are going to be talking about some violence, um, some trauma, some sexual assault, some sexual violence issues. We're not going to go too deeply in them, but they are kind of part of the plots of the movies we're talking about today. So if that is not uh, something that you're in a good space for or want to hear right now, totally get you. Um, and come back later or, you know, don't. If it's just never going to be your thing, that's totally cool. So yes, in our ongoing tradition of choosing unconventional holiday movies in December for our Feminist Movie Fridays, we're doing a double feature on Black Christmas, which I actually didn't know there was another There's version. a third one. Yeah. yeah. We could have done a triple feature. I don't know if we could have handled it. I don't think I would have been ready for that. No, but I had no idea there was another one out there. Um, so we're doing the the original and then 2019 one. So like the original one and the newest one. Right. The one in the middle we're skipping. <laughs> I gave a little bit of a synopsis in my in my run through. Perfect. I, t- I read about it because people were comparing kind of the differences and the way they handle some of these issues and all three of them. So I did read about it a little bit. So we'll talk about it. Uh, I saw the original Black Christmas when I was in college, I think. And I found it highly disturbing. I I still found it pretty disturbing on rewatch. It wasn't as disturbing, but I think this time I knew more of what I was going to get into. Right. Whereas the first time, I I don't think I expected a lot of what happened in that movie. Yeah. First time for me for both of those. I've never watched either one. I don't think mm-hmm. I was aware of it until a year or two ago. And we had a listener who was like, you should watch Black Christmas, the newer version. Especially when we were talking about uh, all of the travesties that were happening under the last administration, including yeah. Kavanaugh and all of that, which is fitting for the first movie as well, it's the second movie, but I found that interesting. It was a suggestion. I We were like, okay, let's do it. Let's do yeah. it. It's out on HBO Max, uh, the newest version. Uh, the other version is on Peacock, mm-hmm. if that so interests you. Neither of them are sponsors currently. <laughs> no, neither none of them, but if you were trying to find this movie. Yes, yeah, yes. for me, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because I'm just agitated and it's that time of year or what. Um, But I'm like, at some points, and I've gotten to this in several movies and like uh, thriller situations or moments of like, oh, don't go in there. You're going to die. I'm like, yeah, you deserve to die. I definitely (laughs) had a couple of moments with them. I'm like, yeah, you deserve to die. That's on you. (laughs) (laughs) I have no sympathy apparently. But yes, it was the first one was definitely a lot more disturbing to me than the second one and a little more cohesive. But we'll talk about that later. Yeah, this was my first time watching the second one. And I'm actually glad I kind of, as I always, I always do this. I research it before I watch it. I'm actually glad I did this for that one. Although, all right, spoiler alert, I guess if we're, if you want to see that one, you haven't seen it. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about it. We're going to talk about the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I did read, I did a lot of reading before I watched the new one. So I knew what it was all about, which I actually think was great. But I somehow, either I misread something or somebody was being satirical and I misinterpreted it or they were incorrect, but they said hardly anyone died in the in the new one. So what? I, yes. So I was watching it like, oh, this is kind of nice to know like everyone's going to be fine. And then everyone very much was not fine. <laughs> and it kept happening to the point I was like, wait. <laughs> 
Like they, immediately, the beginning yes. scene is a death. I know. I, the whole movie, I, I was just getting more and more confused and thinking maybe it's all, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> I have been lied to. <laughs> you had. You have been yes. lied to. <laughs> yes. It made the, it was an interesting viewing experience for sure. Okay, but let's start with um, the old one. The original Black Christmas is a 1974 Canadian slasher movie produced and directed by Bob Clark of A Christmas Story and written by A. Roy Moore. Clark wanted to portray smarter young adults compared to what was often the norm in U.S. horror movies, saying, quote, college students, even in 1974, are astute people. They're not fools. It's not all bikinis, beach blankets, and bingo. And which makes me laugh because he's also the director of Porky's, which is exactly that. That stereotype <laughs> he's talking about. <laughs> I did not know that. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, upon rewatching this movie, I found it to be like the most 70s. It was originally called Silent Night, Evil Night in the US to avoid concerns that it was a black exploitation film. It stars Margot Kidder, Olivia Hussey, who allegedly accepted the role because of a psychic, um, Andrea Martin, Lynn Griffin, Marianne Waldman, Keir DeLay, and John Saxon. It is loosely based on the urban legend of the babysitter and the man upstairs. You know, the call is coming from inside the house, that thing. It's also rumored to have been inspired by a series of murders around Montreal that took place during the holiday season in 1943. And um, unfortunately, the television premiere in 1978 was marred by a double murder at a Florida sorority house. Yeah, so apparently, yeah, the 1978 murders they're talking about is the Bundy murders that happened, which is a fairly big case because there was actually survivors in that case. But also, just for those who don't know, Margot Ketter is Lois in the Superman uh, and all of the probably the more successful of Supermans with Christopher Reeves. And Andrea Martin uh, is the aunt from My Big Fat Greek Wedding. I love her. Love her. And seeing her in this role, I was like, what? What? Just want to put that out there. Okay. Interesting. So, the plot follows a group of sorority girls and their drunk sorority house mother. Unbeknownst to them, a mysterious man climbs into the attic while they're having a Christmas party. Um, The man calls and Jess... One of the sorority girls answers and hears strange noises and obscene words on the other end. She gathers the other sorority girls in the house around the phone to listen, um, and one of them insults the man who promises to kill her. One of the other girls, Claire, worries that the man may be dangerous and goes to bed. The killer strangles her and drags her body to the attic. When her father, Mr. Harrison, arrives to pick her up in the morning, she is nowhere to be found. So he reports her missing to the police only to discover another girl recently went missing when walking home. Meanwhile, Jess tells her boyfriend that she is pregnant and intends to get an abortion. This infuriates him, and Jess convinces him that they will discuss it later. Determined to find his daughter and the missing girl, Mr. Harrison returns to the sorority house and helps the girls there um, put one of their drunk sisters to bed, Barb. At the same time, the house mother finds Claire's body in the attic. The man kills her by throwing a hook in her face and hanging her. The missing girl's body is found disfigured in the park. At the house, Jess gets another obscene phone call and decides to file a police report. Her boyfriend arrives and attempts to convince her that they should get married. She refuses and tells him again she is planning to get an abortion. He leaves in a huff just as the police arrive to bug the phone line. 
After the police leave, the killer murders the drunk sister with a glass figurine of a unicorn, perhaps one of the ultimate symbols of innocence of young girls. Jess picks up another call from the killer who repeats the conversation she had with her boyfriend, scaring her because it's implying he's nearby. But Lieutenant Fuller, who is in charge of watching the phone line, calls to tell her they failed at tracing the call, but that he suspects it could be her boyfriend Peter behind it. Jess does not agree. Another girl is murdered. The killer calls again and tells just a story about two children named Agnes and Billy who did something wrong. Uh, the police chase the call and tell Jess to leave immediately because it is coming from inside the house. Jess uh, goes to check on the other occupants of the house. She doesn't want to leave them behind um, where she finds two bodies. The killer attacks her and Jess flees to the cellar. Peter shows up outside the window, breaking the glass to get into the basement. The police show up to find Jess screaming and barely conscious with Peter kind of bloody next to her. And, and Jess just seems like so out of it. The police believe that Peter is the culprit. So they are like, okay, this is done. They put Jess to bed with a cop standing outside, but we hear the voice of the killer coming from the attic, implying it wasn't Peter, and the killer is still alive and still there. The bodies of the house mother and Claire are in the attic, yet to be found, and the phone rings. End of movie. It's got a really ambiguous ending. Um, it did. <laughs> Yes. Is there a sequel? I did wonder that. I don't think there's a sequel. Um, there's been, yeah, like, the from what I understand, the one we're not really going to be talking about kind of digs into the killer more and why he is the way he is. But yeah, I don't think there was ever a sequel. And this is kind of notorious for having, like, one of these, the most ambiguous endings ever. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. You never know. You never see his face. Yeah, you don't know if she's going to survive. Hmm. It is It is kind of, and we're going to talk about this, it is very kind of frustrating and a little funny. It's like the bodies are right there. Right. Where, where he is. Right. In the attic. They're, the police clearly have not done a good job searching this house. They do not. Yeah, this is the massive amount of like, no one's seen this body. No one's going to check on it. No one's going to do a search of the house. No? Oh, Cool. Especially after she found two bodies in there, I would think you would be like, hmm, I wonder if the other bodies are also in here. Right. Although one of them, they don't know is dead. The house mother. That's true. That's true. Because she was like leaving for a trip. Right. Right. Um, they all assume she'd already left. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. That is true. So when this movie first got released, uh, it got mixed reviews, but has since been reappraised, and in, it definitely has a cult following. Um, it's been praised for the influence it had on John Carpenter's 1978 film, The Thing, and the film Halloween, and is thought to be one of the first slasher movies, and one of the first examples of The Final Girl, and one of the best horror movies of all time. So that's quite a shift from like, meh, to now people are like, <laughs> it's one of the best. Um, and I just wanted to say this because it made me laugh. A season's grievings edition was later released. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Here are a sampling of some of the negative reviews it got when it came out. 
It is notable only for indicating the kind of junk roles that talented actresses are forced to play in the movies. And that's from the Chicago Tribune. (laughs) And, quote, before it maddeningly overreaches in a gratuitously evasive ending, Black Christmas, opening today at selected theaters, is a smart, stylish, Canadian-made little horror picture that is completely diverting. It may well be that makers simply couldn't figure out how to end it. (laughs) And that's from the Los Angeles Times. Uh, but yeah, people were frustrated with the ending. They were like, but wait. <laughs> <laughs> However, it has, yes, spawned some remakes since then. Yeah, so we decided to compare it to the 2019 version of Black Christmas, which uh, is a bit of an on-the-nose take about woke culture, but there was a previous remake that was made in 2007, which Bob Clark did executive produce, and uh, it followed along the theory of the killers being Agnes and Billy, who was abused by his mother, by their mother. Um, but again, yes, yeah, so for the 2019 movie, we have a different take with a bit more supernatural element to it. And yeah, the 2007 is loosely also based on the original. That's what they say. So they took the whole story and made it their own. Um, mm-hmm. But it did have some horrifying abuse uh, segues. Yeah. The 2019 movie was cast and planned soon after Blumhouse Productions founder made this comment. Uh, there are not a lot of female directors, period. Even less who are inclined to do horror. So this was his idea of like why, his, this was his answer to why he doesn't have a lot of female directors as a part of his company or that is a part of any of the movie making. And of course, that got a lot of backlash. <laughs> and so soon after, uh, he decided to go to this route, which by the way, again, is a real on-the-nose cautionary yeah. tale, I guess, or like kind of a revenge movie for all of the sexism that exists, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So uh, when you look at the list of big honchos, though, in the movie credits, it still very male-driven. Very. Like, I was waiting for any other female mm. names. There weren't many. So, mm-hmm. hmm. okay. So, the film was directed by Sophia Takal, and it was written by Takal and April Wolf, and they took this movie in a new script and brought on a new set of sorority sisters from MKE. Mu Kappa Epsilon, I believe, is a made-up sorority. And we have Riley Stone, played by Imogen Poots, Chris, played by Elise Shannon, Marty, played by Lily Donahue, Jesse, played by Brittany O'Grady, Helena, played by Madeline Adams, and Fran, played by Natalie Morris. Now, we're really going to be more so concentrating on Riley and Chris, so don't get too caught up in all of these because the rest die. Spoiler alert. Yeah, sure so. do. <laughs> Despite <laughs> what I just read. in case you need to know. <laughs> so we begin the movie with the opening scene following a young sorority girl getting ready to go home during Christmas break. But we have that eerie moment of watching her being followed by a man who seems a bit too close. At the same time, she's receiving messages from a profile of the founder of Hawthorne College, Calvin Hawthorne, which is where they're at, who we quickly realize as it begins with a quote from him, is a sexist jerk. And much like many other horror movies, after an intense cat and mouse chase scene, she's immediately murdered by a hooded masked figure with an icicle. Yeah. That's always been a thing. I'm like, there you go. The murder, the murder the weapon murder is gone. Uh-huh. A few years later, we see the main ladies of the movie, but there is a nice camaraderie among the women preparing for the holiday festivities and just overall friendship. And just how I kind of talked about in the game that I really love, uh, they, there's this like, you can tell women wrote this in the fact that they're like, we actually like 
our female friends. I don't mm-hmm. know where this narrative came from that we don't, we're all competing with each other. So it was really nice to see because immediately when you think of sorority culture, kind of like the old version of Black Christmas, they had t- two women pen- like having an argument with each other and, and not yeah. liking each other's lifestyles, essentially. But you don't really have that in this one. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of nice to see. Um, but there is a dark cloud that seems to be looming over Riley, who we know has lost both her parents and doesn't want to participate in the yearly holiday singing, which she did the year before and apparently was really good at it. Mm-hmm. We move on to see them in class. Where do we see Carrie Elwes, Princess Bride fame. Yes, I had a huge crush on him. Um, playing Professor Gelson, who seems to be heavily implying that women could not be uplifted without first having men being uplifted. And if men were to fall from their power structure, it would only make the whole system fail and destroy everything. Uh, there is a bit of an intense back and forth where Riley is singled out and we find out that there's a petition against Professor Gelson for his misogynistic and sexist teaching and overall attitudes towards his students led by her sorority sister and friend, Chris. Mm-hmm. Yes, the other one that survives. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so the night is the night of the big event before Christmas break and the fraternity hosting the event is riddled with toxic fraternity traits, including rape and overall disgusting behaviors. Riley prevents a sexual assault from happening to a sister in which we hear the dude calling them bitches and teases, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, She also witnesses some type of ceremony where the bust of the founder, which was removed due to a protest led by Chris, is crying black goo and all the people are in robes and masks. And yes, this is a secret ceremony, Mm y'all. Due to the sister being either drunk or drugged, the one she helped and prevented uh, being assaulted, or both, uh, she goes home. Riley has to take her place in this little musical number, and it is soon revealed that Riley had been drugged and raped by a former member of that frat. And though she had reported it, they didn't move forward due to not believing her. Of course not. And of course, he is present for that night, though he had already graduated, and he's yeah. welcomed back with open arms. And the entire song, which is at the end credit, by the way, uh, if you mm-hmm. needed a remastered version, is pretty much talking about that assault and the toxic culture of the frat. Makes them very angry, the frat. Yeah. And all these things. Um, and she gets her courage and faces off with him during this performance, uh, again, calling out the rape culture and about the incident, and then they run back to the sorority house. And soon after, the girls start disappearing. And even though Riley is concerned, no one seems to believe her. No one. Mm-hmm. No one, including her own housemates. I'm still baffled by this. And she makes a report. But the campus security seems skeptical, saying nine times out of ten, girls are just off with their boyfriends, which, by the way, is a throwback to the 1974 version. And then even comes out with a classic line, boys will be... And he kind of trails uh, off. So, you know. <laughs> she tries to investigate the frat house uh, for her friend, but is confronted by the professor. And she runs away after it's being revealed that their performance went viral which starts an argument between Chris and Riley where it's revealed that all the ladies are getting weird, threatening DMs from this Calvin Hawthorne. We then see the ultimate fight scene in which two more of the sisters are killed as well as one of the sisters' boyfriend who seems to be having headaches 
and acting unlike himself. And very masculine, by the way. This is why he died. He's like, I must protect the people. I am a man. Yes. (laughs) Really. Uh, They are killed by the same hooded masked individual who for some reason now has a bow and arrow. Mm -hmm. Riley and Chris are able to kill their assailant only to find another one coming at them. Something to note, Riley kills one of them with a key trick so many women use when in fear while walking alone in parking lots or the such. I thought that was... A nice touch. Turns mm-hmm. out one of the people killed is the dude Riley saw getting initiated into that secret ceremony, and he seemed possessed, as in he didn't bleed blood, but black goo. Here mm-hmm. we see Riley and Chris argue again, Riley taking things into her own hands to go after the frat, while Chris tries to leave, but comes up on another sorority house that's also being attacked. She helps them escape from the same mask hooded monsters. And by the way, this original, this new uh, sorority is the original sisters for the first person that died in the movie. Yes, so that they kind of knew something me. was happening. Yeah. yeah, I know. I was like, what's happening? Oh, yeah. so that's what's happened. So coming back to Riley, she and her pink shovel uh, that she brought from her home are heading to the frat, run into Crush Landon, who we met earlier, who insists on helping her. And then when she arrives at the fraternity, she finds Helena, who she thought was dead and she was trying to report as missing, but seemed to have been kidnapped by the frat. At that point, Riley is knocked out, but was able to see Helena smile as she goes into unconsciousness, a rut-row. Mm-hmm. When she wakes up, she's tied up at the same secret place where she saw the ceremony take place and is surrounded by others in hoods and masks. And Landon, who also puts on a hood and mask, mm-hmm. the crush who came with her, but he's in a trance, and we learn that the frat has superpowers to turn all the men into alphas and possessing them through goo. Yes. Through the goo misogynistic uh, Hawthorne. And they're all being led by Professor Gelson and her rapist, who's determined to dominate her and punish her for dragging his name through the mud, he says. Helena is trying to make her see that this is natural and, and submission and compliance were the only way to make the world better. But then she, di- she dies violently at the hands of the supernaturally strong brothers. So, whoopsie. Riley Mm. says that she will comply only to attack Brian, the rapist who attempts to murder her. But Chris and the other ladies of the sorority come through fighting again with bows and arrows and then anything else they can find. Uh And apparently one of them is really good with it. So, hey, Riley is able to fight off Brian, break the bus, and fight against the rest of the frat. Chris then lights the professor on fire and the ladies and Landon, who is no longer possessed, uh, run out, lock the rest of the frat boys to burn to death. Yes. Uh, Uh Like the original, there were aspects of looking at the issues at hand, uh, taking apart some of the societal implications of that time. Again, it may be a little too heavy-handed. Maybe I'm just being cynical. No, that was the but big it did critique everybody had. And that's, yeah. why, that's why I say I'm glad I knew that going in, because I actually think it helped me enjoy it more, because I knew... Like, literally right. everything I read said it, it's really heavy-handed. Um, I, yeah, it yeah. really was. I think the conversation of smashing white supremacy and the misogyny and sexism on campus was a key point throughout the movie and the subject of toxic fraternity culture during a time of the Kavanaugh confirmation, which was in headlines at that point, and very familiar to uh, many who've been in this situation or, like, around that situation. And we've talked about it, and it's still talked about, like, all of that toxicity within specifically those types of fraternities. Now, again, I think... There was so much they're trying to cram pack into a movie like this, and it it was hard to get at any point where it didn't feel like it was beating you over the head. And I say this in that they 
almost villainized Chris, who is one of the few women of color in this movie. And to have her being like the angry person of color seems so tropish. I was like, wow, y'all couldn't pick any, no, but okay. It seemed very much white feminist take to this person of color. I'm pointing to myself now, but maybe <laughs> I'm just being too cynical again. Uh, however, yeah, the majority of critics, as you were saying, yeah, they, they weren't great. They, <laughs> they were not, they, they was not, the criticisms were not great. So uh, many reviews were mixed as the script seemed to have a great idea, but not so great execution. That was one of the thoughts from one reviewer. In part, Takal wanted to keep the rating PG-13 to be more accessible for a younger crowd, but may have lost some of the depth of the movie as it passed through it uh, without too many memorable moments in it. And they did talk about like the deaths were so like, the characters were so underdeveloped that it didn't really affect us when people died, which I will say one of my biggest concerns was uh, I didn't want Chris to die, of course not. I also didn't want the cat to die, which by the way, there's a cat in both this 2019 version and the 1974 version that does push the plot along. That's how two of the characters died, essentially, Mm -hmm. uh, was because of the cat. Um, (laughs) I feel like that was purposeful and kind of an homage. So there is that. Uh, But yeah, there you go. 2019 version of Black Christmas. Yeah, it's very different. There are a lot of themes are there and we're going to talk about them, but it's very different. I did, I did, there were parts of it I really liked. And I thought a lot of this, the shots were really good, like really pretty. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, <laughs> I also thought, and I, th- I think we're going to talk about this, but it kind of the way they handled the whole sexual assault thing was a little triggering because there'd be flashbacks, mm-hmm. but also just how I don't think it was necessarily healthy how they talked about it and how all of her friends were like, basically, yeah. you've got to get over it. You've got to face yeah, it. Get over I, it. I think that was the other part. It's like the friend Chris, when I say they villainized her because of this, I really feel like this is what they did with her. And I could get to a point of like, when we talk about social justice warriors and the negativity of like you, why aren't you telling your story loudly? Mm-hmm. You need to advocate. And you're like, that's not how I do it. You don't know yeah. my trauma. So we do see that. Yeah. But yet each one of them forces her into a way that the like people don't yeah. cope the same way. And this didn't happen to you. So this is really irresponsible for you to make that your battleground, that this is your hill when it's not. Right. And yeah. I'm like, this is not being good friendships. This is not good. And the, it felt weird too at the end when she apologizes. Riley, the yeah. survivor, is apologizing to her friend for not being stronger. I'm like, wait. That's yeah. the whole different message when you did this. Why did you do yeah. this? I thought that too. I thought that was pretty damaging for kind of the arc to be, she had to get the courage and be brave enough to face yeah. her her assaulter. That that scene is like a positive, like healing is great. Right. But nothing about that was like her choice and her right. Like, it wasn't a healthy thing that, and plus, None there's murder. <laughs> right. So. There's murder. There's no therapy. There's nothing yeah. other than we need to sign this position and fight. And right. again, I get I get that kind of conf, like yeah. thought process to a certain extent. And perhaps we're seeing something that wasn't what call had originated. This is not the movie right. that she wanted. I don't know. I'm not seeing mm-hmm. that, anything written in her reactions to this. Because from what I understand, her Hulu series or her episode in the Hulu series was really great. 
Um, mm-hmm. She got praise. I think New Year, New You is the one. Yeah, that makes me wonder what was originated, what was the thought process. It makes me think, yeah, this is almost performative from the male gaze. Maybe that's just yeah. a whole, just, whole thing. Yeah. Anyway, was, let's, keep, let's get into the themes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get into it. We'll get into it. Yeah, All right, yeah. so one of the big ones is harassment, which we do see in both of them. And in the original, uh, the killer is often described as psychosexual, someone who primarily targets girls and women. Um, and when he kills Claire, who's the first person he kills, um, he puts a baby doll in her lap and kind of rocks her. And it's this act of infantilization and perceived inferiority of women. Clark claims to have a backstory for the killer. Um, quote, Billy is abusive and abused his little sister and was abused himself and probably killed his parents and probably locked her up in a basement for five or six years. And I think she escaped and Billy doesn't like girls and it turns out Agnes doesn't like boys. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> that's, um, yeah, we've talked about like stigma around mental health and, and abuse and trauma. And so that's kind of an example of that. You really don't get any of that. Like you kind of... It's hard to understand what he's saying on the phone. Right. That felt very ableist, uh, the, not, the rocking and the, and the mm-hmm. overreacting uh, when he kills uh, the house mother. Mm-hmm. It was a weird, like, moment of what's happening. Um, his constant bumbling and grumbling and groaning instead of actual words. It felt very, it, it was uncomfortable. You're like, why did you have to do all this? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's unsettling. And, and another thing, many of the deaths are filmed through the killer's gaze, which we have talked about before about how that can be uh, problematic in terms of like who the audience is connecting with. Right, right. Yeah, and why. Right. Uh, I thought also with the harassment, I thought it was something to note, the fact that one had the phone calls, like landlines and the two landlines in one little house versus the DMs and the fact that uh, having to explain to the security guard what a DM is. I thought that was really kind of funny. I was like, okay, is that where we are? Yes. Well, it is interesting because people have said that. People have said, like when we were talking about cyber stalking, um, that was something people said that was kind of, a roadblock for them is that they had to explain these technologies right. <laughs> to authorities. Another thing that we see in these um, victim blaming at the beginning of the original film, one of the girls says, "You can't rape a townie." Oh yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I gasped at that. I gasped. Yeah, yeah. Because that was one of the things at the very beginning. You you know something troubling has happened around campus and there are some rapes and they talked about we need to take this phone call seriously, which was really disturbing, really sexually aggressive messaging at the the first phone call. Mm -hmm. And then they say that and you're like, ah. Yeah. Excuse me? (laughs) Which is a whole different conversation. Yeah. And in the 2019 version, it's not so much the victim blaming, just more of women not being believed. Uh, And again, the boys being boys statement and, you know, being alpha statement. That's a whole different conversation. But it was more so like the fact that the the other girls weren't concerned. We're like, we should all be concerned. Why aren't you con- like yeah. not believing each other, not listening to each other, and not respecting each other's boundaries? There was a lot of that. And I was like, why? Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely much more of a, we're just, a, it doesn't matter. We don't believe you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was pretty infuriating. Then there's a lot of dismissing of women. 
speaking of, when the girls first report their concerns in the original one, the police dismiss them, not believing them to be true. When Claire is reported missing, they assume she's off somewhere with her boyfriend, which, yes, that quote is in both. They ask if she drinks a lot, um, if she's seeing someone else. They don't explore the house and don't find all the bodies. And also... The, I did laugh at that. They find, Is it like Claire's boyfriend who's like got all this fur or something and he's so serious-faced and he shows up like to the police office and then they're right. like, oh, okay, now we'll pay attention. But he's like, this is an outrage. <laughs> right. I think it's interesting that it took a dead body for them yeah. to take it seriously, for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we've already talked about that rape has happened, so that's... Yeah. And interesting. And yeah. again, yeah, we talked about the security guard being dismissive, the women being dismissive of each other and just kind of disregarding each other's boundaries and feelings and whatever, whatnot, which causes for all the arguments as well. Yeah, definitely a big theme of the movies. And then I wanted to talk about, because I feel like almost everything I read mentioned this, but Jess in the original version has this sweater. It's just like two skeleton hands over her boobs. And somehow oh, I, I don't did even not, notice it. Oh, like I didn't notice it the first time I watched it and I read all this stuff about it. I was like, what? And then when you see it, you can't unsee it. Oh. Yeah. And so a lot of people have interpreted that as like the male gaze or like this male touch or this patriarchy dragging her back. Like it's just like hands on her. At all times, um, which I thought, I thought that was really interesting. It's quite the striking sweater. And then there's Claire. I had I didn't notice this the first time either, but Claire's posters. She has kind of these, you know, they're not like too sexual, but like sexual posters in her room, and it's sort of like <gasps> a gasping moment of her dad's like, I didn't send her here for this. But she is, it's interesting because she's the first to die despite the assumption she's a virgin. There's a quote in there, quote, she's a good girl, which normally would put you in final girl slash safe territory. But she's right. the first to go in this one. But that's interesting that the two women who are pitted against each other as the virginal on the slut, yeah, uh-huh. the, the virginal one has the risque stuff and the slut has the unicorn and the young yeah. girl innocent stuff. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that was meant to be. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I bet it was. Uh, and then, yes, there's a lot of a lot of themes around assault, especially in the second one. Yeah, especially in the second one. So, yeah, just like this whole idea, probably just had her boyfriends, and that's fine. The boys will be boys thing. And when we say it's on the nose, it's on the nose because literally that. I can't remember her name, but the guy who is like having migraines and kind of acting strange, yeah. the boyfriend, he literally says at one point, I like beer. And right. It's so like, oh yeah, Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> right. But it was so interesting because this was the moment where he's been being brainwashed mm-hmm. and he walks in, he's getting more and more aggressive as it goes and they're trying to figure out why, which mm-hmm. is so unlike him. And then he's drinking beer and her reaction was, you don't even like beer. He's like, I like beer. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, what? And so both of those tropes are like, oh, this is obviously a Kavanaugh reference, as well as the fact that uh, we talked about how men like beer. If they don't, they're not manly. And so that was his beginning of like, I'm an alpha male, obviously, because I'm drinking beer. Right. A little on the nose on that one. 
Yeah, I was a, I was a little confused. <laughs> I got it, but I was also like, this feels kind of out of nowhere. But th- at this point, you don't know about the whole goo misogyny thing that's brainwashing right. them. So I don't know. Right. And then we also discussed this kind of problematic narrative throughout the new one of the responsibility to share your story and to share your story in a certain way. I thought this line was interesting at one point. I think Chris says we could make a list of the guys who want us dead. Which right. is, every now and then I take a step back and I think about the walking to the car with the keys or all these things that we do in our everyday that's kind of in the back of your head. You're thinking, I could be killed or I could be raped or something. Like, right. Those threats just live there. and We kind of have gotten used to them. Right. And especially for those who actually take a stand or be mm-hmm. like one of those who do fend for themselves, literally are like, hey, I'm not going to take this. The amount of people who, yeah. But when she says that so dismissively as if it's like common yep. thing is also like, oh God. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, like I said, definitely not believing women. There's also kind of a not leaving other women behind thing in both. Um, I'm not sure how successfully it was pulled off, but there's kind of this idea of like, yeah, we're stronger together. We stick together. Yeah. So that was there. I did want to briefly talk about the abortion part from the 1974 one, because the first time I saw this, it kind of shocked me. I was like, whoa, (laughs) Jess's boyfriend calls her a selfish bitch when she says she wants an abortion. And interestingly, Jess is never really portrayed villainously for this decision. Um, Her boyfriend, Mm -hmm. Peter, is instead portrayed as a villain, as a violent, angry man who's trying to control her. Also, interestingly, while Jess is the final girl, she doesn't quite fit this trope because she's very open about her active sex life. The movie was released soon after abortion became legal in both the U.S. and Canada. I just... I find that so interesting. I feel like you don't really see that in a lot of movies. You don't see that as a plot point spoken so normally, especially. It's it's not such a big deal for anyone else, and there's no one else who's like, oh my God, this is a baby. Like, it's him who is acting like a child and not understanding the level of responsibility. Uh, And then you have her who's just straight forward, like, hey, no, I can't do this. I don't love you like that. Yeah, It is interesting because especially when we talk about the waves of feminism and how it came through, they were so much more accepting. Sminty has talked about it before, about the fact that it wasn't that big and it wasn't this huge morality thing until later on, much yeah. you know, later in history than you would expect. And I mm-hmm. think this might have hit that time, weirdly yeah. enough. Yeah, and so for us, it feels, or at least, right. yeah, it felt weird to me. I'm like, wow, they're just talking about it, and it's not like the right. main plot point, but it's a plot point, and it's like, she's not bad. <laughs> right. She's not being painted in a negative light for it. And it's not some huge, like, drama. <laughs> it's just right. her kind of being annoyed with this guy and being very matter-of-fact. Essentially. Like, yeah. <laughs> and maybe he's a killer. Who knows? And maybe he's a killer. But either way, you're not meant to sympathize with him. No, no, no. <laughs> and then I was I watched both of these back to back, which was interesting because I I kind of there's like this idea of this nameless, faceless killer. And it kind of feels like in both of them that could represent these ideas we're talking about of like misogyny and patriarchy. Of like at the end of the old one, they didn't they probably didn't get the guy. Um it's gonna continue. And of course in the newer one misogyny being like this goo, this kind of thing that people are just absorbing. 
Yeah, it was interesting also. Like, I remember, I think it was in the second one where there was a part where I was like, so are they kind of saying not all men equals all men? <laughs> right. I mean, the 2019 version literally has the argument of the not all men because yeah. Marty, the boyfriend who was like, I like beer, starts yeah. screaming at her about, you lump us all in, we can't win, and you're telling us we're all the bad guys. And she was just like, what? is happening (laughs) with you. But essentially, he is being that voice Mm -hmm. of saying that feminism has caused uh, the villainization of all men. And this is your fault. But then he became all men. (laughs) He did, because that's what they wanted to do. So, I mean, a little less on the nose on that one. And like, see, we told you, essentially. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, but a part of that too is that this the newer one was definitely big on like all of this news stories around sexual assault on college campuses and Me Too and frat culture. Right. Uh, again, yeah, a big theme is the heavy hitting of woke culture. And I don't think they ever say woke in that. I don't think that term had been so big at that point in time. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it is. It's definitely in there. And then the not necessarily a critique, but again, heavy handed themes where you there was no way. It was being said every few minutes about white supremacy, the patriarchy. And again, Sounds like some of our conversations sometimes, Annie. Yeah. I mean, we definitely do live in that world. So uh-huh. not so outside of the uh, realms of it, but for a horror movie, it's kind of like, what? Oh, okay, okay, okay. But again, it's also portrayed by the one who could be seen and disliked because she was too forceful. And I say this in that it seemed like it was a stereotypical casting in, in what they were doing. And how they were representing it and putting it all on one woman, mm-hmm. which seemed weird. I'm like, that's not, that's not always, that's not how that's it. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, again, it, the constant need to fight, quote unquote, uh, whether it's through a petition, a song, or literally with knives and bows and arrows. So, like, that is definitely a heavy handed theme. At one point, one of the critiques about this movie uh, stated that they felt like they were trying to do a get out meaning they wanted to do a very on-topical type of movie, but just kind of was so overboard that it didn't balance. Um, Mm -hmm. And I could see see that. I could see that. Um, Riley as the final girl, but here we actually have two in two different manners, except one is singled out as a victim, out for revenge, and the other is a social justice warrior who runs but comes back to save her friend after she finds backup, essentially. Like, mm-hmm. she finds her crew of people who are ready to fight as well. So I thought that was interesting. But yeah, there was a lot to this movie that I'm like, I see where you're going. Yeah. I, I think if you had four hours long, could really like build some character and depth in these characters rather it would have gone a lot further but Mm. they're trying to make it a slasher horror movie of what it was originally with all the social commentary and not just one or two things but so much and granted 2019 2016 2020 2021 (laughs) Every month probably could be a a two-hour movie. Let's just be real. Any Uh of those years, each month could be a movie in itself. So I get like there was a lot to try to cram in there, especially when we want to talk about 
kind of like one of my episodes when I'm like, here, I'm going to talk about this one thing. And then I've trailed off into 10 other subjects. Right. That could be in its own. Yeah. We do that a lot. So I get it. I get it. I get it. But yeah, it's definitely one of those like, yes, I understand this. Yes. And maybe also, Annie, on this note, with you and I as both being women Mm -hmm. who've experienced sexual trauma, myself as being a person of color, this is like, yeah, I already know. So maybe that's why it felt so on the nose because for yeah. us, this is, yeah, the truth of it. And there's nothing different for us, for us. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. It's one of those weird things where like seeing it, seeing something like that, if it's done well, is nice. Even if it's like, oh, I can tell women have done this. I just remember so clearly that moment in Birds of Prey where they asked about the hair band or something. And I'm like, yes. Right. Yes. Right. So it's like, I'm glad to see those things acknowledged, especially when we know, you know, who wrote it and are are people who have experienced it. But yeah, you're right. Maybe because maybe other people watched it and were like, what? I've definitely had those conversations with male friends in my life where I'm like, oh yeah, the keys, you know? Right. And they don't know. And yeah, I think for me, it just felt like too much was trying to be done, but also... And this also could be very much because we're in this realm. But the, the whole sexual assault thing, I was like, this was not handled well. No. <laughs> it just wasn't handled well. And it felt, to me, as someone who's experienced it, and I don't want to say anything about anybody on the because I don't know, but for me, as someone who's experienced it, I was like, this just feels incorrect. <laughs> like, mm. It doesn't feel like a healthy way of showing this. But. Well, I think the other part to that was when we see the original Helena who's getting assaulted mm-hmm. and she's trying to prevent this. And then she comes back to the group and just literally says, you know, she's just drunk. It's kind of like, are we not going to talk about whether or not she might have been drugged? Which yeah. y'all have already said they do. Yeah. Like, and they were so dismissive and point her as, as if she was like, eh, Helena, of course, and not seeing an issue with mm-hmm. this moment as the victim herself, uh, the survivor herself, uh, Riley, she is triggered. So she notices that and she's triggered. They they show right. it a little bit. But then the dismissiveness of it is like... Yeah. This, which, this is a weird glazing over of a really yeah. volatile, traumatic moment. I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. So there were just some things like that. We didn't even really get to talk about in the, that whole betrayal of. Yeah, we didn't. That, <laughs> and I feel like I get it too, but here's yeah. this other part of like, okay, we got to have the, the you know, we're not going to say yeah. all women either, but here here's this one woman who wants to be subjugated to the, I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. That part kind of threw me that I was like, I guess she's being possessed, but it just feels, it doesn't I don't fit. think she was possessed. <laughs> I thought I she was because it doesn't fit with her character at all. I thought I was like, okay. She came back and was like, thank you so much for my pen, A, mm-hmm. the hair comb. And then it comes back. She's like, don't you see? They gave me a choice and they can give you a choice. And if we give in, we'll be okay because they're going to take over the world anyway. But this this feels right. Doesn't this feel right? I right. don't think she was possessed. I don't think she was supposed to be. Well, what is that called? There's a name for that when you think you get a choice, but... There's no choice but the power of right. tricking people into thinking there's a choice. <laughs> right. They were getting into way too deep of topics for Ooh, this. So many things, y'all. <laughs> um, so let's let's end it here. Um, we hope that you enjoyed this. I think they were 
both worth watching, to be honest. But yeah, it's some <laughs> interesting things, problematic things, uh, as is in most things we talk about. True. Yes. And always keep those suggestions coming. What should we watch next? Ooh. You can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at stuff I never told you. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Yes, thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs> 